Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Sarah Moss. Sarah, we are so excited to have you here again, especially to talk about Revelation. I don't know. It's one of those, I don't know if this is quite in my in my wheelhouse, but I am excited to sit and learn from you guys and hopefully have some good discussion. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of the book of Revelation is that it is very personal. And when we talk about symbols and the use of symbols, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about the personal application of symbols. But I do want to give a little background to the, the book of Revelation in that it is the last book of the New Testament to be accepted as an authoritative scripture. Now, along with that, we're going to talk in our last episode about Revelation. We're going to talk more about that kind of curse and promise at the very end. So I'm not going to ruin the, you know, ruin that <laughs> for the end. But I would say that we we are pretty sure that John, the, the apostle, wrote this while he was on the island of Patmos. Now, one thing that is still under discussion is at what point did he write this? Now, it's interesting when you talk about St. Jerome. St. Jerome had a really interesting story about John the Apostle in terms of what was happening during this time in his life. There's a big discussion when he was put onto the Isle of Patmos. Was that Nero or was that Domitian? So that we have these two different emperors of Rome. One is much later than the other. Now, St. Jerome has a story where it says that he was trying to kill John. And so he basically threw him into an oil fire. And John and is this Nero out. trying to kill John? No, this was Domitian. This oh, was Domitian later. trying to kill right. okay, yeah, right. And so he he walks out of the fire, doesn't die. And so then he goes, okay, fine, I'm just putting you in exile. I'm just sending you to the Isle of Patmos. Now, other people go, all right, you know, that there's no way that could happen. So it must have been Nero, and, you know, those stories are just mm -hmm. apocryphal. You know, that didn't happen. So we don't know when it was written. I have no problems with the later date. A lot of historians do because they're like, well, he couldn't be that old and have this. But, of course, because of our knowledge of John and what he was given when the Lord was taken up into heaven, yeah, it could have been right. that late. The other thing that I wanted to mention was um, everybody talks about how hard Revelation is to understand, but Joseph Smith said that the book of Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. So I wanted to ask you, why would Joseph Smith say that? Well, I have my ideas. I say it's like plain yogurt, that there's been nothing changed or added to it. And the symbols have kept it so clean because so many people didn't understand it. They couldn't shift the words to meet their meaning. So the symbols of it has protected it and its truths and its beauties. And so for me, I think when he talks about plain, it may not be clear to understand. It may be plain like vanilla, you know, like that doesn't have a lot of other, you know, pieces Thanks, added to it. It's, 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 true and it's clean and it's clear so that kind of plain un undressed i i similar think it's probably because of the symbols but i also think it's because um most symbols if you study what it is symbolizing you can infer what it means so even though i am not and i don't even need to go study josephus in this far time if i just go like figure out lamb and and, and learn about shepherding and those are very um, obvious symbols that we have, or even like just think deeply. If we just, if you spend time pondering as it like talks about um, certain symbols in Revelation, you can, I mean, with some effort and with spiritual guidance, which I'm sure will come, I, it's, it's something that I think that we wouldn't have any issue understanding. Right. And, and you find other ones. I, I love the one we were talking about this morning where there's the sand and then the sea of glass. Mm -hmm. And the sea of glass is the sand, but it's been purified. It's and so be. once you realize that, you're like, oh, and how cool how they, and he does that a lot where he has, 
any anyway different pieces so it's fun it is fun and to figure this out and it does take pondering it does take spiritual insight and inspiration but i do want to also kind of point out that we do have a lot that we can read and study that can help us in understanding this from prophets of god specifically joseph smith joseph smith in terms of the joseph smith translation there are over 80 verses in the book of Revelation that he changed. Sometimes it's a word, sometimes it's more than a word, but just to keep that in mind as we read the book of Revelation that you looked at those Joseph Smith translation changes. The other thing is to realize that Joseph Smith did a lot of demystifying of the book of Revelation. And I want to share four, and these are taken, David Edwards wrote a, a wonderful piece on Joseph Smith in the book of Revelation. And these are four of the points that he brings up. First, he said, um, Joseph Smith talks about understanding the time frames, that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are specifically for John's time. It's talking about the seven churches, it's talking about that time. And then we have a break in terms of chapter four. And we'll talk more about what happens at the beginning of chapter four, but it brings John to a new vision, a new revelation, where he's talking about the future and what's going to happen in his future, but also the latter-day future as well. The second one is for us to realize that sometimes a beast is a beast, and sometimes it's a symbolic figurative representation. And so don't get so hung up on sometimes trying to figure out or tear apart a symbol. Sometimes it's really he saw a beast. He saw, you know, saw an animal. The third is don't be distracted away from principles of Jesus Christ. That for me, that's probably the most important. It's so easy to get down that symbol, you know, symbol path that then we kind of lose the point and don't lose the point. And then the fourth one is to look to the words of modern prophets and to the scriptures. So specifically, Joseph Smith gave us a lot of additional scripture to understand the book of Revelation. We have Doctrine and Covenants section 76, section 77, which is just a bunch of questions about the book of Revelation with Joseph Smith's answers. Doctrine and Covenants 29, Doctrine and Covenants 128, and in the Book of Mormon, we have 1 Nephi chapter 22. And all of these places are where it's really the prophets teaching us what these things mean, especially for us in the latter days. Now, I did want to just mention that the term revelation means apocalypsis. That's the Greek term. And apocalyptic literature has been, you know, kind of a thing. You think of all the novels that talk about the end of the world. But that's not really what the word apocalypsis means. Instead, it means to unveil something that is hidden. And Nicholas Frederick wrote a wonderful piece on Revelation, and he said, what John's vision serves to do then is to unveil Jesus Christ, to reveal his true nature, character, and mission. So I wanted to ask you, since we've been studying Revelation, how has the book of Revelation strengthen your testimony in Jesus Christ. I'm just surprised how much of it he's in. Like even the first, the entire first chapter is about him and so much of it is focused on him. Um, I think before I really read it, and this is one of the first times I really read it, I think of the Revelation, the book of Revelation as just end of times, just second coming. Um, and even that is the second coming of Christ. But I thought it was like, oh, this is, this is just how we're going to see the world tear apart. But in reading it, it mentions Christ so many more times than that. And it even likens back to what we can do through Christ for various things. So I'm just surprised at the amount of, of Christ is in this book when I originally was like, oh, that's, that's end of times, before Christ end of times. I also think the end of times part as, is how to prepare for Christ. Mm -hmm. So even if we don't go, go through those same world events, we can go through them internally. 
So whether it's going to be the world, the idea of cleansing and those steps and what each one does that we can do similar. So there is a a symbolism to so many of those second coming events that we can see and feel in preparation for our own coming to Christ. So on so many levels, the whole book is about Christ coming in his glory of us all being reconciled and being with him. And so that's the point of it. Well, and I love that idea of unveiling Christ to each one of us through our study of the book of Revelation. The other thing that I think the elephant in the room is symbols. So why is it so difficult to understand these symbols? What are your thoughts in terms of this amazing symbolic language? I mean, because it is, I mean, he's talking about beasts and dragons and, you know, harlots and mothers giving birth in the desert and the moon and the sun and all these these different amazing visions that we're able to kind of gain a glimpse of. What are your thoughts? Well, so many don't happen nowadays. Like we don't have women having to give birth naturally in the middle of a desert because we have the safety of hospitals. And even it's just like the combined knowledge of civilization. There are so many things that he probably just describes as a beast that if someone nowadays might see the vision and describe it, might describe it differently. But just you have to think of how... The times were so different when he wrote this. Right. Like oh, the armored could, scorpions. Uh, armored scorpions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He just they were used the best. Locusts. I thought they were locusts. Oh, you're right. Armored locusts. locusts. Um, With the sting of a scorpion. You're right. Yeah. You're right. There are all of these things that if if each of us were to have seen the vision, we would describe it completely differently. But because he's seeing modern time and not living in modern time, and you're like, how does, wait, tiny to, armored? Yeah. We, we can imagine a tiny armored locust. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I know. But the vocabulary, too, has changed. Yeah, that's true. Right. So, you know, we have those words mm-hmm. to say that's what it true. was, yeah. and he wouldn't have that I do also have to say that I love that so many of the symbols are symbols you've read through the whole scriptures. That's true. So as we've studied the scriptures together, when you see a candlestick, You think of the temple, and it was the only piece of light in the temple. And then you think of Christ saying, I am the light of the world. And so we go back to those beautiful, beautiful things. When we see the beasts, we go back and read Daniel, and you're like, oh, they're so much the same. This is fun. So as you you use what you've learned, it connects to the whole scriptural tome. I said that wrong. But, But I think that's the key is that we don't look at it outside of itself, but it really does. It's beautiful. It's the end because it's the grand finale that connects everything together. And I love that idea of interconnecting our own knowledge of the scriptures as we read these symbols, Mm -hmm. that sometimes we try, try to always look outside. You know, we try to find, tell, you know, have other people tell me, explain to me, help me understand where many of these symbols, we can use our own knowledge, our no, uh, own right. understanding and experience and figure them out very individually in terms of what it means to me. I did want to just share, though, a couple. These are these are just a list of, of symbolism, what they mean. And the reason why I'm doing this is, you know, kind of the opposite of what I just said. The reason why I'm doing this is many of these are found in Doctrine and Covenants 77. I'm just doing the bare minimum but also you can find them on you know churchofjesuschrist.org you know all of these are mentioned and they're pretty universal and so you know some some of the symbols you'll read conflicting ideas the ones that i'm just completely you know talking about are ones that everybody pretty much knows that, that these are what they are the first thing i want to talk about was numbers 7 means completion and oftentimes represents God and his divine creation. Three and a half is incomplete, or half of seven. And realize it can be also orders of three and a half. So for instance, 1,260 days is three and a, three and a half mm-hmm. years. So you have that three and a half going you know, on and And it's and also on. a time of preparation. Right. Often there'll be a three and a half years that prepares for some event. And a time and times and a half also was used, and that would be three and a half. Four is pertaining to the four corners of the earth. Six is a divine counterfeit. It's usually almost seven, but not there, right? Six, six, six. Exactly. 
12 is pertaining to Israel. And also, you know, we talk about New Jerusalem measures 12,000 stadia, Mm -hmm. which is just a, you know, measurement. I do think that it's interesting to also think that 12 is also a priesthood number as well. 1,000 is just a lot. And so when we talk 144,000, think about it as 12 times 12 times 1,000. So you're talking about a lot of priesthood, a lot of Israel. So, you know, so realize it's not necessarily 144,000, the exact number. In terms of beings, of course, we have the lamb as Jesus Christ, but we're going to talk about another lamb that's not Jesus Christ. <laughs> the grumpy lamb. I know. <laughs> we have dragon, which is Satan. Then we have the beast from the sea, which is a false messiah, and then beast from the land, land, which is a false prophet. Then we have the harlot, Babylon, which we've talked about multiple times, the bride, the church of the lamb. We have eyes, which is usually knowledge or wisdom. That's straight from 77, Doctrine and Covenants. Horns are p- power or authority is, is seen right. by a and horn. And on the altar, there were four horns, and so it was really also priesthood. There's that priesthood piece to it. Right, and temple priest to it. Right. We have the wings, which is motion or speed. White is righteousness. I mean, we think of that purity. Uh, red is violence or bloodshed. Some of this is like, duh, you know, just, just living. We're going to know these kinds of things. Black is evil or foreshadowing. Pale is sickness or death. Trumpets, warnings of judgment. Vials, judgment. Seals, you know, we have two different kinds of seals. We have seals that actually stop things, you know, where the seal had to be broken. Or we have somebody who is sealed which means that you're belonging to that person. And so we have some people who are sealed to the lamb, but we also have some people who are sealed to the dragon. That's true. So you're sealed to to one or the other. That's when you're belonging to that person. And then finally, I just wanted to mention about the scroll or the book, that that also is an explanation of God's plan of redemption. And we're going to be talking a lot about those things. So some of those symbols are things that all of us would relate to. Some of them might be things that, you know, once I kind of described it and then you read it, you'll go, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so I I love the word epiphany because when we think of epiphany, I think of the book of Revelation. It's kind of that, you know, hit myself in the head. Oh, now I get it. And that's kind of how I feel about Revelation is that it's an opportunity for us to learn, to grow, and to have a personal understanding of something that maybe the first time we read it, we really didn't understand. And that goes right along with this idea of unveiling Christ through our, I mean, that should be our number one. As we read all of these, we should just constantly ask ourselves, what does Christ have to do with this? How is Jesus Christ in these verses? And it's so funny that you say it's the number one, because it's literally... It's literally number one. The first chapter of Revelation. Um, I think it's so interesting. So in verse three, um, it says, for in, in the first chapter of Revelation, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And then if you skip over to 19, so and we'll talk about what the prophecy was or what was in it. It says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So he's kind of and and John is 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 told to to read, to hear, to listen to what you're reading and then keep um the, keep those things that are written. And then he's told to write and he's told to, to um, oh, spread it around and show it. And so it's so interesting that he's told this and the things and what is in this chapter is about Christ. Um, and so it's really John's testimony of the divinity of Christ. That's what this first chapter is about. Um, and so the first chapter is full of of the be- those beautiful symbols and and ones the ones that are very easy and simple for us to even today, um, saying that his head and hairs were white like wool and white as snow, which is in 
verse 14, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And if you even think of his eyes as his intelligence, it's interesting to even think that his intelligence is, is, is as fire and um, just a, a, an amazing sight to behold. Um, so while I was reading this first chapter, I was really um, uh, kind of brought to think of my own testimony of Christ and how reading this is, is we're supposed to kind of ponder our own testimony of Christ and get ready to share it. Um, and so I was thinking of my testimony and the testimonies I've borne in Fast Sundays recently. And it's so interesting because most of them have been about side doctrines of the gospel. Um, eternal families. I've, I've borne my testimony, eternal families and, and, um, oh, and prayer and all these things. And I realized, I don't know the last time I bore my testimony on the divinity of Christ, on Jesus Christ himself. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you guys, what is your testimony in Christ or how do you gain that testimony of Christ? Because when you think of tithing, you do, you, um, Oh, you pay your tithing and you can receive a testimony of that. Of eternal families, you go, you start your eternal family, you struggle through having small kids and you gain a testimony of these families. How do we gain a testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ? Not even him and his atonement, but the divinity of Jesus Christ. I think the number one way is through prayer. Because as we pray to our Heavenly Father, but in the name of Jesus Christ, that we also gain that witness. I mean, every single time we pray to Heavenly Father and say we're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ, if we're really thinking about what we're saying, then we gain that understanding of His divinity. And we also understand that He is the God of this world and that He is my God. And, and I think that we make that statement when we end our prayer that way. So for me, uh, through prayer, but also you were talking previously about how you talk to the Lord when you're taking showers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is That's great. That's going to haunt me. I, should As, <laughs> I know, which is, I think is great. And, and I have to admit, having that constant conversation in your head also enables you to, to really understand that Heavenly Father, we talked previously about how, you know, Jesus Christ can abide with me. I can walk with Jesus Christ in my daily life. And if I'm constantly thinking about him by my side and trying to live in that way, I think we definitely gain an understanding of his divinity. And I think that that recognizing him is the key is because we know that, um, what does the Holy Ghost do but testify of Christ? And so I do think it's that recognizing because that was kind of what my answer too was. Mm -hmm. It was like when you're even in sacrament, when you're listening to the sacrament prayer, that is about Jesus Christ. When you're ending your prayers, that is about Jesus Christ and letting your, yourself living the gospel, letting the spirit testify you, testify oh. to you. I also think when you're young, and your home, and you think, oh, I really like my house, or I really like my family, or I really like this dress I'm wearing. You don't think it was your mother that bought you that dress, and you're not grateful to your mother, mm -hmm. you're grateful for the dress. <clears throat> and so I think part of the key is that when we say, I'm so thankful for my family, for eternal families, and that is made possible through Christ. When we receive an answer, we think, oh, I felt the Holy Ghost. We felt the Holy Ghost bring us the words of Christ. And so I think part of it is we already do have that connection, but we haven't opened our eyes that none of this would happen. You're like, you're, I'm so grateful my room's so clean, but you didn't clean it. Your mother came to clean yeah. it while you were at school, and you should be, I'm grateful for my mother. And I think sometimes we're thankful for the clean room and not for the mother who cleaned it or for Christ who made it possible. So taking that extra step yeah. allows us then of gratitude. Um. Uh, Elder John M. Madsen um, gave a talk called Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God. And in it, he says, following this comforting and sacred promise is a serious and equally sacred charge, even a commandment which cannot be ignored. And ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ, that I am the Son of the Living God, that I was, that I am, and that I am to come. Why this sacred? 
Why the sacred charge, this commandment of the Lord to his servants? The Lord answers, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And I really just, it kind of struck me for a moment. I was like, wow, I do. I just haven't made that that connection because um, all of my testimonies that I'm thinking, like, oh, this is just a side testimony. It really is a testimony of Christ. Mm-hmm. I pay my tithing to the church because Jesus Christ is the head of this church and he's using it to further his work. Mm-hmm. All of these things can connect to Jesus Christ when you're looking for it. And that's one of the reasons why I love that that revelation starts with Jesus Christ is because it really does. If you have your thought on Jesus Christ, revelation is all about unveiling him. But if you have your thought on the second ta- second coming or the signs of the times, that's going to be what your focus is. So I did just absolutely love that it starts on the divinity of Jesus Christ and his magnificence. Well, and then right after, he also talks about how He personally knows his church, but he also personally knows us. So what are your thoughts about that, Christine? Well, I love this. Okay, I do have to say, um, many times throughout the scriptures, you'll think, oh, this is for an individual. It doesn't apply to me. Or sometimes even while reading the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, think, oh, it applies to this person that was called on a mission. It has no application to me. And so sometimes you throw scriptures away because you don't find that application. And as in chapter two and three of Revelations, I love this because he goes through the seven churches. And number one, there were seven churches in Asia mm-hmm. that were kind of the center of the church that were continuing the faith. But seven is a number of God. And so it really is a spiritual representation of all the churches. And they could have split them up and made them 10 or made them eight or made them six. But there was a reason there was seven because it really is symbolic. And then he goes through each church and he tells them what's wrong. And I like that because I look at myself and I go, okay, which church am I today? Am I Smyrna <laughs> or am I? <laughs> oh, I like that. You know what I mean? So it goes through and, and it's, it's like some of them are great. It says, I know thy patience and all that thou was doing. And then it says, um, thou cannot spare them which are evil, and thou must try them which say unto the apostles are not, and they are found liars. So some are struggling with apostasy. Others are struggling with, um, um, others are totally righteous. He's just like, good job, good job. And so each one is different. But then at the end, after describing their works and their struggles, he says in each case, to them that overcome. So even if you're even if you're surrounded with a congregation or your own heart that's struggling with repentance or struggling with um, keeping every corner clean and not letting evil creep in, if you overcome, there's a different gift. And so for all seven, each has a different gift. So I'm not going to go through the weaknesses because I have enough of them. I don't need to go through them. <laughs> but I wanted to go through the overcome blessings. So the first one is in verse 7 of, of Revelation 2. So it says, To him that overcome, which is in the, um, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise. And we know the tree of life is what? The love of God. <clears throat> the love, the love of, of God. The love of Christ. And so we will eat of that tree, even in this life. And I love that idea that for those that overcome, they will feel the love of Christ in their life and that fruit that brings happiness. And so we're given that promise if we overcome. The next one is an 11, he that overcome. And you see in in verse 11, it's at the end. Mm -hmm. He that overcome shall not be hurt of the second death. And so I think that's a cool one, too, is that we're told that we'll be able to be with those that are righteous, that eventually, at the end, even if we struggle with persecution, at the second death, we'll be with the Lord, we'll be with our families again, we'll have all those blessings. Okay, and 17 is the next one. And you see in 17, to him that overcome will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name shall be written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. And so I love this because the hidden manna, that's the hidden bread of life. So what do you think is the hidden manna? No. I I love it. I love the idea of it. 
So what is your, I don't know. What is your hidden manna? I, I think the hidden manna, I mean, perfect example is here in Revelation. We've already talked about how you have to work for it. You have to, you know, you have to look for it. The Lord, when he gave the manna, they had to go out and still pick it. They had to go out and gather it. You know, it wasn't like it. And it's not just obvious manna. It's hidden manna. It's hidden manna. So you have exactly. to like go search for it. You have to it. work for it. But it's there every day. Mm-hmm. I, I love say, it. So this, um, the church that he's yelling at is one that is very bad, like fornications, idols, sacrificing. They're one of the worst. They're one That's of the true. worst. That's true. And so true. it's interesting that I feel also when seeing that, and seeing how this is. Pergamos the, is naughty. Pergamos is more <laughs> naughty. Um, I think it's also just the simplicity of living the gospel that brings you joy. Like and living the gospel of medieval. A medieval. Mm-hmm. And finding those moments of real. Because you think of you think of the people who are out there who've just are sleeping around, who are drinking, seem like they're having on the outward appearance, seem like they're having so much fun. Like they're eating their uh take or what are they, making the cake and eating it too. Um but when you have that hidden man of joy, it's like, I think it's like, oh, coming home to my husband or having my husband come to my home. And it's like just simple joy, just playing right. with my children. So I also think it's it's things that like the world's like, oh, my God, you're a stay-at-home mom and don't do anything. You must That's like, try. You don't oh, have chocolate stuck. cake. You just have you manna. Have, yeah. <laughs> but it is it is joyful. And so I also think it's... And then I love the, the last part about the Yerman Thummim, the stone with the new name, which is obviously mm-hmm. temple. Mm-hmm. That we'll have those temple covenants and we'll have the blessings. And that's of what temple. makes me think it's marriage. That's what makes me think it's Aww. it's kind of like, healthy, especially when they're healthy. dealing with fornication. When they're dealing with fornication, then the opposite would be covenant. Yeah, the right. new and everlasting children. covenant. It's all about so children and fornication. Wow. Okay, so this one gets me, and this just made me giggle so hard. The um, we're going through the um, next one, and we're looking at verse twenty-six. So um, for this one, is another church of great evil. And this church says they were mostly good. This is, um, how do you say it? Thyatira? Thyatira. 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 And it says that you guys are doing so good, but you've let in this Jezebel woman into your (laughs) congregation. And she's kind of led all these people astray and she's doing all these bad things. But it says that he that overcome, and when you read it, it sounds really odd because it says... um, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule with the rod of iron, and the vessels of potter shall be broken to shivers. And you're like, what? But that's a Joseph Smith translation. And so you're like, okay, I don't really care about that. I don't want to like rule over everybody and, mm-hmm. and break them up into pieces. That doesn't sound like what I want to do, you know, <laughs> smack them over the head with a rod of iron. But if you look in Joseph Smith translation, it says, to him who overcome and keepeth commandments, Unto the end will I give power over many kingdoms. And we know kingdoms is like our children and our children's children. And he shall rule with them. You shall rule them. You'll rule your children and your kingdoms with the word of God, which is the rod of iron. And they shall be in his hands as as the vessels of clay in the hands of a potter. And he shall govern them by faith and with equity and justice. And so as we raise those children, as we lead and love, the Lord's also going to help your partner in helping. And don't you know, as you raise your own children, and we know this, that having the Lord's help, because sometimes you just pray and put their names in the temple, and then you just hope, and it's the Lord that has to do the potter's clay because we physically can't do it. And I just love that. That's a gift I want. The other one about smacking people and smashing them to pieces, not so much. (laughs) So anyway, there's just a couple more, but they're so beautiful. The next one is in chapter 3 in verse 5. He that overcome, the same should be clothed in a white raiment, and I will not blot out his name in the book of life. Which is so exciting. That's so sweet. That's a sweet one. Which is really that you'll be there with him, that you'll oh, be there and you'll be there forever. And um, six is in verse 12. He that overcome will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out. And I love that because you know how they talk about pillars of the community and to think of yourself as a pillar in the, the temple. temple. That's sweet. That you're just so solid. 
I love that. And sometimes we don't feel as solid. And just to have that solidness, what a gift. Well, and, the, oh, and go he ahead. didn't finish that in, in that he says, and he shall go no more out. And I love that because this idea of you're a pillar in the temple and you're not going out into the world. Which Instead, so you're just cool. stuck there in the temple in terms of I love it. the commandments, the covenants, the everything that you do in the temple. I love that. And I didn't. I didn't finish it too, where it says, and I will the write upon him the name of God and the name of the city, which is the new Jerusalem. So it will be part of, of his Zion. ultimate city. Mm -hmm. And I do love at the end of the world. I'm sorry, but I, sometimes the other day I was saying to somebody, don't you just like, aren't you ready for Christ to come? I'm so ready because I see these sweet people who are struggling and they can't see the truth. They get blinded and hurt. And you're just like, when None of that happens. It'll be so nice. But that idea that you'll be part of the city and whether on this side or that side of the veil, when we're all meet up together is such a fun idea. I can't wait for that day. And then the very last one is at the end of three to him that overcome. Sorry. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. And sat down with my father in his throne. Mm -hmm. And so I love that, that ultimately, as we strive, and we remember Christ is the one that brought us those blessings and develop our relationship with Christ, the greatest joy will be sitting beside him, feeling like a true partner. So I love the blessings. So you can look at the weaknesses, and but we the blessings are awesome. You didn't even add... As I also overcame and am set down with my father at the throne. If I you love John Christ. and if yeah. you love Revelation, you need to hang out with John. you got to hang out with Jesus. I know. But I think that's, that's talking so about fun. Christ, not John. Because it says me and my throne. You're right. That's true. Oh, sorry. Yeah. But, um, but John will be John there, too. John will be there, too. He definitely there. will be there, too. He definitely. Right. And anyway. Well, and that's then we go to chapter four, and we have an, an interesting change. So these first three verses, like, I mean, chapters, like we said, are very much about John's time. Mm -hmm. But in chapter four... But have eternal consequences. They Don't do. think they're John's they time. They do, right. They're for us <laughs> today, to right. for sure. But then he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. And now that's interesting. We talked about what a trumpet symbolizes <laughs> and a trumpet can't talk with you, yeah. but you know, he's symbolically talking about that. Which but it said, is a funny idea, the trumpet going, <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I was like, you know, it might just be a phone. Like someone might have just called on my cell phone. He could have seen a phone. And he that's thought true. it was a trumpet. And he thought it was a trumpet. <laughs> he's like, why is there it. a voice coming out? And he says, which said, come up hither and I will show these things which must be hereafter. So that is the introduction. But I love this idea of him beholding a door open in heaven. That symbol of looking up into heaven. And what does he see when that heavenly door is opened? What's the very first thing he sees? He sees one sat on the throne. He sees Christ. It's exactly. And the thing that I want to focus here is the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one there who could make Christ. Heavenly Father's plan possible. Because at this point in, in Revelation 4, we have the whole concept of the book. And the book is the, the plan of salvation. And who, you know, and basically what happens is John sees the book and he, and he says, who can open this book? And he's weeping. He's weeping. Who can open this book? And the only one who can open the book is Jesus Christ. He was the author of this. And so I do want to go to um, chapter 5. We're going to read verse 5. You know, we're going to read, sorry, 6 and 7. But as we do, I want you to think of those symbols that I was okay. just talking about but in I, terms of I what it means. Can I just say my favorite verse? Of course. So when he looks up in um, chapter 4, Verse three, he sees the heavens and we always like go to the temple and think of it as all being white. And really white is the preexistence or cleanliness. But the heavens with the Lord it's is... It's going to be beautiful. He sat, um, 
He that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone, which is bright red, my favorite color, so I can feel good about red. Congratulations. I know. (laughs) And there was a rainbow about him in the sight like unto emerald. So you had every color and then this bright green. So it's so filled with color. It's like the celestial room of the New York City Temple. So it's just color. And so I love that. Mother would love that. So definitely. Definitely. So I just, it's funny because we think so often of the temple being boring and white Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, like people talk about it being jello it's not it's not a jello salad it is a rainbow it is beautiful and glorious and filled with color and passion and love it's probably because right now we need that symbol of purity but once we're all kind of like pure and once we've made it right then we can easily feel the spirit in the (laughs) technicolor well let's go to verse six of five and he says and i behold held and lo in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So we talked a little bit about what is the symbol of seven. Seven is... Is of the Lord. Perfection. So, right. But and, it, yeah. Right. And so it's a symbol of perfection and of himself. Right. And then and seven... So it's going to be a spiritual foundation. Mm-hmm. So seven horns are his perfect power. Perfect power. Seven eyes are his perfect knowledge. knowledge or wisdom. And then the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So it's the fact that he is also the God of, of the earth. And is that applied to the dispensations, probably the seven dispensations of time mm-hmm. oh, that cover all the earth? So there's, you know, because so we're going to be talking or, about that. Right. right. We're yeah. going to be talking about those seals opening up and, and right. have us seeing that. And he came and took the book. So Jesus Christ takes the book, the plan of salvation, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So Jesus Christ is the one that takes the plan of salvation out of the hand of our Heavenly Father. And then he also is the one that makes it happen. He opens up the seal. He has the plan of salvation happen. But then I want to go to verse uh, 12, 13, and 14. And actually, if if you know the, you know, the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, we could sing it. We could sing it. (laughs) Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And then we have this grandiose amen and an amen that happens from the beasts and the, you know, the 24 that are all there. For me, this is such a glorious vision. I mean, so basically we are told in such beautiful, poetic ways that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. Elder L. Tom Perry just uh, gave a wonderful talk on the plan of salvation. And he said, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, became the leader in advocating the plan designed by the Father, and we accepted the plan and its conditions. With that choice, we earned the right to come to earth and enter our second estate. All of this is made possible by Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece of the eternal plan of the Father, the Savior who has provided us a ransom of mankind. For me, that is what we must remember as we read Revelation, but also going to your initial comment, Sarah, it is something that we also have to remember as the centerpiece of our testimony, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the founder of the plan. That's why I'm here. That's why I have a family. That's why I have a body. That's why I have a home. I mean, everything I have and everything I am is because of the Savior. So then why are we sometimes lukewarm about it? <laughs> lukewarm. That, I feel like that phrase is one that haunts me. Because it's definitely one that I often, um, I feel like I'm often lukewarm in the worst ways. (laughs) Uh, So the lukewarm verse is back in Revelations 3. 
Um, and it is in 15 and 16. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I, it's the first thought that comes to mind is how interesting that he'd rather you be cold. Like, he'd rather you be either cold, completely in the gospel, or completely out of it. Because this kind of in-between... Back and forth. um, It's... I I was saying, you know, for those who are completely inactive, they're ministering uh, sisters completely. They're like, okay, this one, she's not coming to church. We need to go. We need to go love her. We need to go service her. We need to go um, really bring her in. And then those who are completely active are the ones doing that. And when they're looking for those who aren't active, but then there are those who are lukewarm, who go to church, who will go to, um, all the activities, but leave a little early, but leave a little early. Right. I haven't really spoken to somebody. But unless I feel like, the, I, and I feel like there are people who can see in their eyes, but unless you have, I feel like divine revelation to reach out, I they, I don't think they they don't they just seem, get lost. They just get lost. They don't seem. Um, now, were you going to say what you told me earlier about um, that when you eat food, that oh, if it's cold right. or hot, that it actually has more flavor, you specific flavors. Oh. And so, when they talk about more. your salt losing its savor, mm-hmm. that the temperature of food can change how you lot. taste it. And I thought she was crazy, and I googled mm-hmm. it, and she's not. So it tastes sweet, and is it sweet and sour more when it's hot? And then I think it's like umami and salty, like, like more bitter, when it's right. cold, or yeah, bitter and. Anyway, so but well, it was interesting to me. But I think with us too, that if we're hot or cold, the Lord knows really what we are. Mm-hmm. The lukewarm, you're kind of hiding yourself from yourself. You're not really are anything. Well, I think of uh, a conversation I had with our uncle Malcolm, and um, you know, mm-hmm. Uncle Malcolm had been. A, a very young mission president. And then right after that, he was made stake president. And so oh. his entire, you know, young adult life, I mean, he was a, a mission president at 35 and then, you know, stake president for 10 years. And I can remember seeing him after all of these years of church service. And then he was released. And I went up to him and I was, you know, an older teenager at that point, And I said, well, you know, Uncle Malcolm, now what are you going to do? And he said, I can't wait. I want to be the one that cleans up at the end of every <laughs> oh, single, you know, fun. ward party. The one you always wished oh, was there. Exactly. <laughs> I want to be the one that takes down all the chairs and puts them oh. away. He said, I am so excited to be that member that is always just serving in the background. And, and I love that because I think sometimes we think hot and cold, then I must be, you know, the leader up in front. And what he taught oh, me was that sometimes that hot member is the one that's not, but that quietly is doing the service that nobody else I wants to do. We have a brother like that in our ward, and he goes through the ward list. And if there's someone he doesn't know, he goes by their house. Oh, so amazing. he knows everyone on the ward list. Amazing. And I thought, I used to be that girl. I need to start being that girl again. So if you look at the footnote for lukewarm, it actually goes to the top guide for apathy. Um, And so I actually just gave a talk on spiritual apathy at church. And I just want to share this. Honestly, it was one of my best, the best talks I've read for a talk. Um, And so this is from Elder Suarez, and it's about spiritual apathy. He says, Such apathy is characterized by the gradual loss of our excitement to engage fully in the Lord's gospel. And I think that's where engaging fully doesn't just mean leading from the front. It also means helping those at mm-hmm. the back. And I think that that is... I. I love that. I love the idea that even those who are cleaning up and setting up chairs are are hot, even though they're not... Fancy in the fancy mugs in the that's front. So, yeah, I'm hot. They're hot. They're, they're, they're hot in the back. I love that. Honestly, that's well, amazing. and I think in many ways they are hotter. You know, that's true. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the fact that they're true. quietly serving in the back. And they and, don't have something thinking, pushing them. They like don't be calling to be the one that's in front, which wow. is so powerful. And I'll just add the Elder Suarez. Um, he suggests that the remedy of being lukewarm in the gospel is reigniting your awe of Christ. Nice. Just to bring it back, it's it's like he loved to serve like that because he loved Christ. Well, that makes me feel He's better. Fellowshipping <laughs> God. Because I think then the Lord inspires you in what corners you're mm-hmm. supposed to be serving. Exactly. 
Well, and how do we worship the Father? You know, when we talk about his beloved son, hear him, how can we make sure that we do hear him? Okay, so I love this. And I, you know, there's sections of the scriptures that you haven't read for like a long time, then you Mm -hmm. pull them out and it just hits you in a way you've never seen before. Yeah. So in 4, 10 for 11, it's talking about the um, 4 and 20 elders who fall down and worship him, which is really, uh, it represents like the quorums, the complete quorums from both like old and new, from all people. So it's really all covenant people. So, um, so under, since we're under the current 12, it would include us. But at the end, they come and they fall down before the Lord that sat on the throne. We're in 10. And worship him that liveth forever, ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. And that just got me because the idea that some people struggle with comparison. None of you, but I struggle sometimes (laughs) with comparison. And we think of the things we try and build or create in this world, the people we try to love and lift and work on, and you think of all those things. And of course, we don't take that to ourselves, but we do a little because it's human. But in the end, when we go before the Lord, we cast our crowns before him. And then we all have the same gift because we get to sit there and say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, just like we were singing before, Mm -hmm. for Thou hast created all things. And it's cute that it says, for Thy pleasure, but it means at Thy will, that um, they are and were created. So for a wise purpose that God only knows, there's a reason. But I do think, remember that as we build in this life and we're trying so hard and it seems so little, and then you see someone else whose crown is so big, they're all going the same place. You don't get to keep it forever. And in the end, we all have the same reward. So it's almost the same as the story of the talents that, you know, the one that had just like a meager couple of talents and the one that had five and then made them 10 and then got the extra ones to boot, that both got the same reward. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so to remember that really eases that um, idea of comparing or about worrying, um, that same idea of letting those externals go happens in the temple. When we all dress in white, you don't see those differences. You just see the heart of the person. And that's what we need to worry about is with all those trappings gone, you know, what is really in us? Are we really worthy to worship the Lamb in fullness? And so I love that. I love that too. And, you know, I I wanted to end this discussion with the idea, this is actually taken from Nicholas Frederick, about the four lambs throughout Revelation. So fun. And so we do have, you know, the Lamb is going to be, talked about over and over and over again, because like I said, this is unveiling Christ to us and the different faces, if you want to call it, of the lamb in terms of what what does he do as the lamb of God? The first one is here in five, and we already kind of read it. It is the conquering lamb, where we're saying worthy is the lamb. Right there in verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So he is the conquering lamb. Then if we go to Revelation 7, if we go to chapter 7, we're going to read verses 9 and 10. And this is the redemptive lamb. This is the lamb that seals and washes with his blood those that have followed him. And he says, And after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all the nations, kindreds, tongues, peoples, stood before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb." Isn't that funny? And you think of the triumphal entry exactly. with the palms, but we're all going to be there. We're all going to be there. And I love the fact oh, because that's... I can still remember um, I was in a, a, a gospel discussion and the teacher that was doing it asked, well, how many people do you think 
will make it to celestial kingdom. And a lot of people, you know, what percentage of all the people that have lived on earth? And a lot of people were saying, well, 1%, Whoa. 2%. And he said, no, I believe it's going to be 99.9%. You know, it might take some yeah. of us longer to get there than others. But when I read this, for me, that's kind of a testimony that it's going to be a great multitude that no man could number. And it's going to be all kindreds, tongues, and people. The third lamb is that of not the lamb of God, I but know. a different lamb. The naughty a lamb. Peri but... The naughty lamb, the, the <laughs> counterfeit lamb. Sorry, the grumpy the lamb. Count the counterfeit lamb is kind of a scary lamb. But if you, we look specifically in verse 11, <clears throat> And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spake as a dragon. So, scary. I know. So he's going to look like Christ. And he's going to fool so many and he's people. And he's going to fool so many people. He's going to be the counterfeit. Because he has the look of Christ. Because he has the look of Christ. But finally, the last lamb is found in chapter 19. And we're going to read verse 9 and then 16. And this, page you know, this is the divine lamb, the alpha and omega, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Uh, so, and he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, king of kings and Lord of lords. And that's all capitalized. And it's so all capitalized. <laughs> exactly. So it is the Savior. But I did want to, you know, we've talked a lot about how modern day scripture will also help us to understand a lot of the things that we're talking in Revelation. And specifically, Doctrine and Covenants 76. When we read Doctrine 76, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, in the light of what we learn in Revelation, it just brings up new understanding. And I did want to share just this two couple of verses, 39 through 41, when it talks specifically about the Lamb. For all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead through the triumph and the glory of the Lamb who was slain, who was in the bosom of the Father before the worlds were made. And this is the gospel, the glad tidings which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us that he came unto the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world and to bear the sins of the world and to sanctify the world and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. That is the testimony that we have here in the book of Revelation. I wanted to end with, you know, the two of you ex expressing your own testimonies of the Savior. What are your thoughts as we talk about this unveiling that happens through the book of Revelation? Well, I'm just so grateful for Christ's sacrifice for me because I think a lot of people struggle with guilt and the gift of Christ's atonement is that we need to carry no guilt, that we can lay that guilt at his feet and as long as we're connecting ourselves to him and making that reconciliation on a regular basis, that he carries that for us. And then as we see that's really true, and I felt that in my life, and it lifts and cleans, that there is such a real gift to this connection and such real hope in every choice you're making. And that all comes through Christ. I just love that as for as powerful as Christ is, his symbol is the Lamb. The fact that we've talked, or um, there, are, there's scriptures that when he comes again, like all knees shall bow, all tongues confess that he is the Christ, and that is just a lamb. That the power of the atonement was so um, magnificent, and Christ Himself um, is so perfect that he could have been, he could have chosen to be a lion, like. He could have been the lion of the gospel, but he's just the lamb. And I think that's so, um, we've talked about recognizing, as I really recognize that he is the reason that my testimony of all these other things is the is with me, 
And as I, as everything, every time the Holy Ghost has whispered truths to my heart, they've been of Christ. Um, it just makes me fully surrounded in his love. That all of these things that I get to do and the joy I have on this earth, that it was his will that they would be done. And it just, it increases my love for him. And that's kind of where my mind went to is the concept of love. Because we talked last week about John and how often he talked about love and how he would call you know, the saints beloved, beloved, beloved. And he's called the beloved. And he's called the beloved. And as I think about that, I also think of how the Savior gives me his love because of his sacrifice, but also that through that I can love him and I can love him more and more and more. And as I learn more about the Savior, as I go down that path that you were talking about, Christine, I gain a greater love, which love also translates in the way I treat others. So as I love him more, my life becomes even more full and filled with love as I show love for my brothers and sisters here on earth. So I am so thankful for the book of Revelation and the way it unveils to me the love of God and specifically Jesus Christ in my life. So thank you for this beautiful discussion. Thank you. Thank you.